Hello, everyone. My name is Lou Palumbo, and welcome to Between the Lines. Welcome to Between the Lines. We have no uh, shortage of topics to talk about, as usual. And I see we have some callers lined up, so let's get to some of our callers and our questions. On the line, I have a gentleman by the name of Paul Walton. Very interesting story. His father is a war veteran, oldest living war veteran from World War II, was born in our country in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in 1919. And I can only imagine what a discussion with him might entail. But right now I have his son Paul on the line who's been taking very good care of him. And um, I want to pass on to Paul. So we had spoken earlier and mentioned the fact that you know of me from my occupation. Yeah. And I guess we brushed up against each other. And fortunately, I didn't offend you, <laughs> as I've been known to do. Oh, no. Oh, only, in, only in good ways. That's, only that's in good, good. ways. That's good. That's a departure for me, too, because I'm pretty direct and, and at times quite abrupt in what I do. You know, this is an interesting business that I've been involved in for over 35 years. And, you know, I like to do things the nice way a lot of times. Sometimes time and circumstances do not afford me luxuries of um, being gentle, as they would say, Paul. But uh, you have a question, I gather. Well, you, you've always been a professional. That I can attest to, Lou. You are certainly one of a kind and I'm very happy that you were the person that was in charge of all the different award shows because they all went so successful and people don't realize that it's because of people like you. That's why they were very successful and you can take that to the bank. Well, I, I appreciate that critique, but I do have to say that everything that I've supported, it's usually a cumulative effort and we're just part of a support mechanism, Paul, you know, it really starts at the head of the fish, which is for example, with the golden globes, the gentleman oversees it, which is Barry Edelman. Barry is brilliant. I worked with some really incredibly talented producers and directors, you know, um, Ron Weed and, and uh, Ken Shapiro. And I have to tell you, without these men and their unconditional support, it would be much more difficult and problematic for me to do what I set out to do, which is basically ensure everyone's safety. But I have to tell you, it's not just me. And it's it's really an interesting story, the Globes, because of the way I came into the event and just the way it ended up metamorphosizing with this relationship of 14 years with, as I just mentioned, a number of individuals in production. Because the show isn't about me. It's about the Golden Globe Awards. We're just part of a support mechanism. But they made my job very easy. Dick Clark Productions, and I worked for Dick Clark also, I actually had the, the honor of presiding over his memorial service in Malibu, California. And the Hollywood Foreign Press, they, they were great to work with. My recently passed friend, Lorenzo Soria, had been the president a number of years. And uh, it was it was an incredible experience because of how much good we got done. There were very, very few stumbling blocks. I think all of us had this mentality of never having no as part of our conversation. You came to us with a problem. We came to you with a solution. You know, we had an immense amount of support also from the Beverly Hills Police sure. and the FBI post 9-11, you know, in particular – we had 11-year run afterwards with the FBI, who gave us an incredible amount of support. Wow. Hazmat teams, tactical units, mobile command stations, they were they were incredible. And by the way, they didn't charge anyone a dime. Well, you, you know, Lou, you are so humble. And this segues into me thinking about what my dad did during World War II. My dad alone, like Lou Palumbo alone, could not have done this. He had a whole team of people. And so did my father. And my father is no no special hero over anyone else. He's just part of a team that 
technically save the world and saved America. But he's just one of many. I have to say, Paul, I'm going to be disappointed if I don't have an opportunity to sit down and speak with him. You know, my father was born in 1912. Wow. And he lived through world. Yeah, exactly. And these were a different breed of cat. These were different men. They endured massive hardship and and separation and loss. And they had different values, you know. And your father's probably got some journey to talk about. What are you currently doing with him, may I ask? Yes. Currently with him right now, we're in Los Angeles. We're getting ready for the final 14 states and 14 governors to complete the No Regrets Tour. And if people do want to see what it's about, they can go to noregretstour.org and see. But right now, I'm letting Dad just relax a little. It's a beautiful day here in Santa Monica. And I'm letting him relax on the couch a little. Hi, Dad. Hi, Dad. How you doing? Okay. 102 you are. Yeah. What was it? 102. Wow. God bless yeah. you. Do you remember, Dad, when you were walking to school from the Bronx and you'd walk through Harlem and then you'd go to CCNY? Yeah. And then one day you decided you wanted to join the Army. Yeah. Why did you join the Army, Dad? To fight who? Hitler. To fight Hitler. And that was eight months before the war even started. Yeah. Who does that, Lou? Who does that? Well, as I said to you, Paul, these were men of different cloth, and their commitment to this country is immeasurable. You know, their courage, their honor. He's what Americans stand for, to be honest with you. And unfortunately, you know, he he may be uh, the end of of a generation of people that had this unbridled commitment to this country. So the thing is only to thank him for his service, his his honor, and his courage and his love of this country, which helped preserve this country at a very, very trying time. Thank you. After the war, Paul, where did your dad go after the war ended in 1940s? So uh, after the war, Dad, I know you came into very little fanfare because by the time your ship came back from India, where you fought the CBI theater, China, Burma, India, it was already 1946. The war was well over. You didn't come into New York City with a victory parade, and then uh, you went down to, my understanding is, North Carolina to uh, teach at Duke University. Yeah, right. What did you teach at Duke? You remember, was it chemical engineering? <laughs> oh, no, no, I know what it was. It was geology. Remember, Dad? Hey, Paul, I've got, a, I've got an interesting question for you, for your father. Yes, sure, sure. And I'll tell you why I ask it in a moment, but where did your father meet your mom? Dad? You went on afterward to Yale University in New Haven, and Mom was going to school at Harvard, and you met Mom on a blind date in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at the Brattle Theater, right? Right. What year? 1953, eight years after the war ended, and you met her in Boston, and that's where I was born in Boston, Dad, 1955. Great city. It's a great city. It's a great city. And, Dad, you remember you took her on a honeymoon to Lake Willoughby in Vermont? Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. You know, it's it's funny, Lou. Certain things I know at 102 trigger his his brain, and he remembers. And some things he doesn't quite remember as well. But I know the trigger points. It's like I'm a good acupuncturist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. What a, what a journey he must have had. And it isn't over yet. You know, he's going to continue to meet heads of state of various states and 
and, and everybody should take interest and pay homage to him for his commitment and his sacrifice. So your, your parents lived in Boston, was that right, Paul, after, uh, after they married and, and they resided there for the rest of the time? Yeah, for a little while. I was born there. And we lived in Sudbury, Dad. You remember that? Yeah. And then uh, we, Dad got a job at Dow Air Force Base as a civilian. So we moved up to Bangor, Maine. Yes. And that's when my two uh, younger sisters were born, Judy and Ellie. And then in 1960, Lou, Dad had enough of the cold and the snow and the sledding accidents. I was ready to break every bone in my body. And he said, you know, I think we're going to move to Beverly Hills. No, I was just kidding. No. A little departure. <laughs> moved, a little departure. Yeah. We actually moved to San Diego, where Dad got a job working as a civilian for the Navy now at North Island Naval Air Station. Right, Dad? All right. And that's where we grew up in San Diego, far away from movie stars and glitz and glamour and Golden Globe Awards. However... I have something I want to reveal to you, and only you're going to know. You're the only person. Are you ready for this, Lou? I'm ready. It's a scoop. Just before you called me to go on your radio station, Aaron Paul of Breaking Bad called and got off the phone with him. He is such an ardent supporter of World War II vets, and particularly my father. He saw the website. He saw what it was all about. This is the second time he's called. And uh, he just wanted to call and say thank you and uh, for everything my dad's done to help save the world, save America. He even said he'd like to get together and shake my dad's hand personally. Isn't that something? What a great guy. I want to say a couple of things here real quickly. My father was born in Worcester, Massachusetts in 1912, interestingly enough. Wow, Worcester. Yep. Yep. You know Worcester, Dad. Yeah. yeah, and he rode boxcars as a young man after the Depression where he met my mother. Wow. When she was 16 years old, yep. He met her in St. Louis, Missouri, oh. and he ended up marrying her when she was 29. Little, <laughs> little story in between there, and I floated onto the scene a little before your mom and dad had met and got married. Isn't that something? Well, my mother was 28 when my dad uh, married my mom, and dad, you were 36. Interesting similarities. And my father had an interesting journey also, I can tell you. Did your father ever read this book by Tom Brokaw, Last Great Generation? Well, it's interesting. Even though he hasn't read the book, we did meet Tom Brokaw in New York City a, a couple of years ago at the Robin Hood Foundation. And uh, it was wonderful. We took a nice photo with Tom Brokaw, and uh, it was an honor to meet Tom Brokaw. But we haven't read the book yet. Was your father a friend of Frank Sinatra? Oh, Dad, you loved Frank Sinatra, didn't you? Tell you, Dad, I started working for him in 1990, and um, I stayed with Mrs. Sinatra after Mr. Sinatra's passing in 1998. We buried him out in Palm Springs, California. Oh, my and, God. Um, Mrs. Sinatra will be dead, I think, three years in August. I buried her next to him with her parents. Oh, my But I figured he'd get a kick out of that. Yeah, that was an interesting circle to run in because, like your father, he had another interesting journey also. And, you know, we, we are so spoiled in this country today, Paul. The conveniences, the technology, the ease of everything we get to do, which could go, we could go off on a tangent now and start to talk about generations. Sure. But that generation your father came from was, uh, Quite telling. And I'll tell you something else he might find interesting. Yeah. I went in the police department in the early 70s. I was graduated from college. Really? 
Yeah, I worked with men who were police officers from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they were just different men. They had an interesting value system. They were just incredible to be around. You learned an immense amount about them, about this country, but they were from a different cloth, as I mentioned to you earlier. They suffered a lot of loss. Sure. Death, separation, adversity, and they were hardened, but they were still, they were good men. It was interesting. It was, um, a learning curve to put it to you politely because again we were just college kids and, and these were real men that came yeah. out of hard times. So absolutely. I want to thank you for joining us today, Paul. I really had a, I really enjoyed speaking with you and I wish your father and you the best. We enjoyed speaking with you. We we had a question. Uh, you joined the police department, was it back east? Uh yeah, in New York, nineteen seventy three. Yep. Wow, that's the boy, that's incredible. I'm a little older than everybody thinks as a rule, but I, I had the benefit of really going on. It was a whole different country also. And in a lot of ways, we're addressing police reform and some things that needed to be address, addressed. We had, we had great cops though. And, and I'll tell you, you know, it's another discussion about how we policed letter of the law versus spirit of the law. Yeah. We had different tools that we employed to address children, for example, before we decided to just summarily arrest them and ruin their lives. We had prerogatives. Sure. We could give them a little, you know, hop in the hiney, send them home to their parents and tell them, <laughs> don't let me catch you smoking a joint again or drinking a beer right. before we just arrested them. And today, a lot of the prerogative has been stripped from law enforcement, and they're doing things much more by the book or at times not doing anything because of the climate in which we live in, which is a whole other discussion for you to call back in and ask questions about. So. Who would have ever thought that the police today would be handcuffed? You know, who would have ever thought that? That's yeah. Yeah. Just abominable. And my father just doesn't understand it. But I'll say this just before we go on November 11th, Veterans Day, dad, only dad was the uh, and not part of he was the longest parade from Washington, D.C., all the way up to 95 with a, a full police escort all the way into Manhattan. Really? And I got to tell you this, Lou, no one knows this, but if you Google Sidney Walton, Manhattan, it was on NBC News on November 11th. He came into New York City with a hero's welcome on Veterans Day, even though, you know, because of COVID, everything was pretty much canceled, right? He had an escort. All the fi the fire department came out. They shut down Sixth Avenue. They saluted my dad. I have videos of it. And then we terminated the uh, three hundred mile parade at uh, radio, uh, not radio, um, where, where the Christmas tree is uh, in, in Rockefeller Rockefeller yeah, Center. Mm -hmm. It was one for the record books. And I got to tell you, New York City police and the fire department did such an amazing job. So if you were a part of that at one time, Lou, you are our hero. We just yeah. love the police department of New York City. It sounds like your father was revered and still is revered. Paul, I want to ask you this. If anybody wants to follow your father, how can you tell our audience to go about that? It's real easy. Uh, we actually have two websites, noregretstour.org or GoSydney.com. Sydney, S-I-D-N-E-Y. GoSydney.com. Sounds good. All right. We're going to wrap it for now, and hopefully I'll hear from you again, Paul. I mean, please feel free to call in at any time. And Absolutely. Thank you, Lou. Thank, Thank you, guys. You. On the line, I have a gentleman by the name of Ed James. He's been kind enough to call in, and I think he has some questions or concerns about what's happening in America today. Ed, you have the floor. 
So Lou, I, I, I don't know if you've been um watching the news this morning, so there was there was some shootings at massage parlors throughout Atlanta. And I think they're trying to determine if it was um just specific to this guy who who frequented these places or if it was um related to some of the violence against invasion of Americans of late. I'd be curious what your what your thoughts are about that. Well, to be honest with you, you know, right now they're in the, in the investigative mode, so it would be premature. All I could really do is offer speculation. If I had to gut instinct, I would just say this was just another young man with mental and emotional problems. The fact that he patronized three separate facilities of this type, I guess it should make us jealous, but, you know, bottom line is there was something wrong with him, I would say conservatively, which was fully acted out yesterday. The investigation will tell the tale. They'll go, they'll go into all of the technologies we have, your cell phones, your computers, your emails, your text messages. They'll canvas neighborhoods. They'll go through a whole exercise and trying to create a profile of this individual to determine, did he do this by himself or did he do this in, with, in consort with someone? But that's a really good question, Ed. And it's a question that every time we have an incident of this type, law enforcement delves into. They need to get to the bottom line as to what really drove this. Did he have a bad experience there? I, I mean, it could be any number of things. Maybe at one point they just decided to stop providing him service. Mm-hmm. That's a trigger, you know, and obviously something wasn't right in his life. You know, this is just my opinion, not worth much. But <laughs> someone this young from this demographic shouldn't be patronizing massage parlors, if you know what I'm saying. And yeah. I'm not being judgmental. I'm just giving you my opinion on this topic. But that is a good question. And and the best thing about it is it, it affords me an opportunity to explain to the public and to listeners, you know, what that mechanism is once we start to delve into, say, a criminal action. Mm. It's a whole investigative process, and it just blossoms like a flower, depending on the information you're cultivating at any given time and or a person you're, cult- you're speaking to. It, you know, you'll have some insight on this thing. You know, we're going to want to talk to his girlfriend if he had one, to be candid with you. We're certainly going to speak with his parents, his siblings. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot to do with this thing because, you know, the public is entitled to some answers and law enforcement wants to have an appropriate resolution to what happened that day. They can't turn the clock back. They can't save people's lives, but they can go back and, you know, revisit this now and see if there's a way to prevent this in the future. You know, clearly these are going to be individuals and businesses of this type that have to concern themselves with perhaps security because of the exercise of their establishment and the demographic they they attract so yeah i'd be curious though, lou your 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 stance so the immediate knee jerk reaction from the media has been to prior to even the hearing from the sheriff's office or the, or the mayor of atlanta um has been to um assume that it was part of this larger question of violence against asian americans i'd be curious on two on two fronts one is what your take is on that in general on the, on the, on the, on the issue with Asian Americans being attacked and violently assaulted, but also the media's reactionary mode to try to solve, solve the investigation before it's even started. Well, you know, Ed, there's no secret we're having a problem right now in the country with people of Asian descent being the focal point of aggression. That's quite unfortunate. It's extremely unfair. Clearly, that could be an element of what transpired yesterday. But as I said earlier, Ed, you've got to let the investigation, you know, continue to blossom before we can come out and definitively make that statement. We may find out that may have very simply been the motivation with this individual. You know, we don't know and we won't know until the investigation is completed. As far as the media, you know, we've had discussions about their responsibility. This knee-jerk reaction just is completely inappropriate. 
It fuels a narrative at times that isn't necessary. You have to let things kind of take their course, allow things to evolve. And and as far as the media goes, they're looking for viewership and sponsors and airtime. And I am suspect as to what the motivation or the agenda is. So, And I'm in general that way with the media lately because of the bias that they from time to time demonstrate. And I want to say not all of them, but too many of them. We have some very, very good journalists that are on air every day, whether it's our three major networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, mm-hmm. or our are three 24-hour, I think there's more than three 24-hour news networks. But the point I'm trying to make, there are people that are responsible and those some of those that are not. That satisfy you, Mr. James? <laughs> That's great. On to a different topic about uh, Johnson and, and the attack on the Capitol and him saying, gosh, I wasn't afraid because it was only the Proud Boys and it, wasn't, and it was only QAnon and it wasn't BLM. And if it was BLM, I would have been terrified. Um, what do you think that says about his state of mind, um, what actually happened there, the way we're treating and, and responding to what actually happened at the Capitol on January 6th, and, and how polarized, uh, well, maybe I'm putting too many topics together, but how A lot of questions here, Ed. A lot of questions. Let's narrow this down, young man. <laughs> <laughs> Give me them one at a time. Let's first talk about the, the comments by our elected official. Yeah. Symptom of the problem. Okay, that's one thing I want to say to you. None of our elected officials should be of this mindset. We have an expectation that they're a little better thinker than that, but it is what it is, and I think this speaks volumes of him. And I think maybe when he runs for election again, depending on the demographic and their mindset or mentality, might result in him not being re, you know reinstalled as, as an elected official. The thing that's very important for people to understand is that the militia groups – that converged on the Capitol. These are not Republican militia groups. Right. These are not Democrat militia groups. Right. These are anti-government militia groups. So well, military trained as well. I mean, you, you saw some I, I can get into that, that were... for you. They're so well trained, it would frighten you. They're so well armed. It didn't frighten Johnson. <laughs> What's that? It didn't frighten Johnson, I guess. Well, but, you know, it just speaks to his cognitive state. I mean, obviously, he doesn't yeah. know where he is. I don't know what to say about that. And I don't want to harshly critique him, to be very candid with you. He made a mistake. He misspoke. You know, there may be a consequence attached to that. But, you know, at this point, I don't want to dwell on him too much, Ed, because what he said spoke volumes. And unfortunately, that's the rhetoric that further polarizes us in a time where we need to galvanize us. And that's the real problem here. As far as the the capital siege, I don't know what to say to people. Our elected officials are not listening. You know, when you start to legislate, when you start to reach out, you have to reach out to everyone, not be solely concerned with the people that you think are going to vote for you, which is what's going on in this country today. I've said my approach to the, to the militia groups that have grown from probably three to 50 at least, who are heavily armed, who are trained by children, by young men, they're not children, by young men from the military, mm-hmm. law enforcement. They work and live in class three states, which, which are states where for $200, you can acquire a tax stamp to go out and buy a full automatic weapon. We have to pay attention here. Maybe we need to try to establish some type of dialogue with their leadership, who we know, and start to see if we can dial this down a little bit as opposed to further amping it up. And not to go off on a tangent with you, but we're, we're looking at one of our political parties that are pushing gun legislation agenda, which is important to be very candid with you. Their discussion about closing a loophole at a gun show is on point. They're concerned Mm -hmm. about the FBI not having sufficient time to properly vet the more than 40 million next checks from last year. Dramatic uptick. Very valid. As far as disinformation, I spoke to this earlier on another show, I believe, 
of guns being bought on the internet, not quite accurate the way they're depicting it. You can choose a firearm on the internet that you like, and that individual must then send that overnight or second day, that's the way UPS and and the government mandates, Mm -hmm. to an FFL dealer, a firearm store, which are also state-regulated. That's how you acquire that weapon. But this issue with militias is something that needs to be addressed on many fronts, not just about identifying them, not just about investigating them, determining if there's complicity in any type of criminal act that the the Capitol was the focal point of and our elected officials, but to try to establish some type of or line of communication with them. So that's an ongoing conversation, Ed. That isn't going to go away, to be very candid Mm -hmm. with you, for a while. I think we have to watch it closely. I know that factually, our law enforcement community has infiltrated militia groups the same way they did Hell's Angels. No secret. You can see documentaries on it. And that's something that's essential. But I think the intelligent way to approach this is to try to establish some dialogue and dial down the rhetoric within their own group because they've got a whole lot of people amped up today. And just to remind everyone, the loser of the last election garnered 75 million votes. Okay, and the people that voted for him were probably militia style people, even though they're not necessarily Republican. I think what was attractive to them about the former president was the fact that he's not the status quo and he's a bit rebellious and disrespectful for the government himself, you know, and may listen. And the deal is this. Maybe he was right on some levels because I wouldn't say that our government is functioning 100 percent in our best interest. I think anybody with an ounce of common sense can see that. But, you know, we're going to continue this conversation at about militia groups in the, in the future, hopefully. But mm-hmm. that's pretty much a synopsis on how I feel about it right at this point. Well, it's interesting, Lou, on the militia group front, uh, not to dwell as well, but I think you have said to me in the past that they've been around for many years and it's almost like waiting for the moment to strike. And is there, is there putting the genie back in the bottle now? I mean, they're out, they're established, they're, they're on the left and the right, you know, so what, what else? do you think we will see from those extremist groups? You know, Ed, that's a really good question. And I'll tell you, my greatest concern is not so much they're going to take over the White House and have a party (laughs) or the Capitol building or take over the government because you're going to come into D.C. I'm going to give you the Capitol for the night and I'll give you the, the White House for a night. And after you finish party and clean up and lock the doors, there's a bigger concern that I have. And that has to deal with the assassination of our elected officials, which is why I think it's so critically important that we intelligently and surgically start to address these militia groups on multiple levels. And one of them has to be establishing dialogue with them to see if we can dial this down and help relieve some of the concerns people have about the government that they feel doesn't equally represent them. That's what came out in 2016. When you say establishing dialogue, how do you even generate that? How do you, you go to the head of the Proud Boys? And- yeah, absolutely. We, we know who the head of Antifa is. Antifa isn't a democratic group. They're a, an anti-government right. group on the left. Proud Boys and, and these other groups are anti-government groups that tend to lean on the right. The, the key is we know who the leaders are. We know who they are. We, we've surveilled them, Ed. The intelligence has been gathered. The key now, I think, is to try to establish some type of communication with them to explain to them what the end game is. Listen, this is the bottom line. They're not going to win. They're not going to take over and rule this country. That's just not going to happen. They don't have the numbers, to be very candid with you, mm-hmm. but they can cause a lot of death and destruction along the right, way. Right. You know what? Listen, I want to wrap this for now, if you don't mind. Is there something else that we can talk about real quick that's of important or pressing? Uh, I, I mean, it, it kind of speaks to your mindset a little bit, Lou, in terms of the divisiveness in the country. And I'm just, it's just interesting to me that depending which 
viewpoint you have, be it being Republican or Democrat, you will have a different take on things in the news. I mean, this, I know you're not a big pop culture person, but when you look at Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's interview, and, and it's being reported different ways on different media outlets, to me, that's, that's insightful. And I think it says something, you know, if you're, if you're right wing, you're anti-Megan Markle, and if you're left-wing, you're, you're pro- I mean, it, it doesn't make sense that people don't have their own opinions just coming at it as an individual. Well, the unfortunate part of that is that their opinions are being formulated for them by the media. The media is creating your narrative, and they're creating your optic. But at the end of the day, you know, to me, this is a bit of a private affair. I don't know why it would garner so much media attention. They need to breathe life into subjects like this because it gives them viewership. What they don't understand is it's kind of counterproductive because it brings to, f- to the forefront another issue that we're polarized on. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, I don't know enough about Meghan Markle or Prince Harry right. to really speak to this intelligently. You hear a lot of things. They used to say, none of what you hear and half of what you see. I told you, and you know factually, that I worked for a member of the royal family from the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been made privy to certain things about their customs and mores, which, you know, I could see could be problematic or difficult for a young person. It certainly posed it that way for Diana and Sarah Ferguson. Mm-hmm. But um, as far as Meghan and Harry go, look, this is my attitude. I wish them the best. They have a child. The most important thing on the planet is nothing more important than our children. She has one on the way, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I hope they find some peace in this thing and stop giving life to things that are so toxic. I tell every be- everyone every day, eliminate toxicity from your life as much as you can, number one. And if this is a toxic relationship for Meghan Markle, then she needs to extricate herself from it. And as far as Harry goes, he's got to make a choice. He married this young lady, hopefully for the rest of his life. This may translate to him having to extricate or step away from the family, which he's demonstrated he's already done. You know, this is their private lives. I do not understand this thing about talking about people's private lives. I don't get this. I don't want to, I honestly, Ed, I've always said this. I don't want to know what people do in their private lives. It isn't my business. I respect your right to choose. Somehow the media needs to have a topic to talk about. So I'm getting whispered in my ear, Ed. I have to tell you, it's yes. very annoying on this side. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's going to get one sweet after nothing. this. What's that, Ed? <laughs> sweet nothing? Not sweet nothings. Nag, nag, nag. It's like being home. No, I'm only kidding you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we need to go to break right now, ladies and gentlemen. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at some emails. Ed, thank you for joining us today. And I always enjoy speaking with you, my friend. Same here. Take care, everybody. All right, folks, let's take a quick break, and then let's get to some of your emails or voicemails. Remember, you can always go to our website, leave a message or comment if you choose. It is betweenthelines.tv. Welcome back to Between the Lines, and we have some emails today. First one is from Jennifer. Jennifer, thank you for communicating with us. And I encourage our viewers or listeners to continue to provide us your thoughts, whether it be in the format of a call or an email or however you choose to communicate. In any case, Jennifer is curious about the importance of not failing our children and how do you keep them safe and still expose them to the world. That's a really, really interesting question. And it's a very difficult question. And I'll tell you why, because the world has changed dramatically. As parents, we all have concerns, first and foremost, about the welfare and safety of our children. 
It's an interesting world. You have to teach them on how to navigate this world. You have to teach them about people in their environment. You have to teach them about saying no, you know. You have to teach them never to be afraid to speak out against people that are encroaching or insinuating themselves into their space. Part of this is the balance of not damaging them. You know, you don't want to damage them emotionally and trying to keep them safe. All you can do is, in as a calm manner, talk to them, talk to them, talk to them. Make them aware about people in vehicles so they don't get taken off the street. Teach them basic concepts that if someone ever goes to grab you, you employ this tactic called break and run. I tell everyone about this, men and women alike, children. If someone approaches you with a gun, just run. They're not there to shoot you. They're just using that tool to coerce you into what they would like you to do, which oftentimes is to leave the street. Never leave the street. You have to teach children that. You have to teach them about how to locate the firehouses, the police stations, how to go to schools. How to summon help for themselves should they need it. You know, it's a really difficult conversation today. It strikes right at your heart. It's a crazy world. Things have not gotten better. They've gotten worse. And I have to tell you, stay in their lives as discreetly as you can. Monitor their communications on their phones, the computers, because it's going to tell you a lot about what's going on in their lives. And just caution them. You know, things that parents don't understand is that I think they're saying it's one out of four or one out of five children is solicited by a predator, sexual predator, on our internet. You know, we're letting our children use these computers as a form of parenting because it gets them out of our hair, quote unquote. Yes, it does do that, but it exposes them to potential scenarios where they may be at risk. You need to educate them, not just in the classroom, but in their home. But you have to do it in a way that we don't traumatize them. And that's the balance to that whole, that whole topic. It's a difficult, difficult job today. I don't think it's anything more difficult today than parenting, or maybe for that matter, since the beginning of time, I don't think there's anything more important, more difficult, and probably more labor-intensive. You know, I often kid, like, I've worked some really interesting security details where I've been out 16, 18 hours a day, three or four days in a row, that you're literally sick from fatigue at the conclusion. It pales in comparison to what my wife goes through every day. That's all I'm going to say to you. There's no greater responsibility And it has many facets and many faces. And for us, even as parents, you're constantly on the learning curve. So hopefully, Jennifer, that answered that question. I hope it satisfied you. I want to move on to Mark from Virginia. Mark is asking about this gun show loophole and uh, what does it actually mean? Here's the problem, Mark. In the climate in which we're living today, you can literally go into a gun show in any number of states, whether it's California, Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, North Carolina, pick a place. They all have these gun shows, even New York. Some of the states are a bit more liberal in their policies at these shows than others. Some states and some gun shows will not allow you to purchase a gun without providing proper identification and going through what we call a NICS check, National Instinct Criminal Background Check, something we spoke to earlier. Here's what happens, though. You get into a certain environment, a certain gun show, and they will literally allow you to purchase a high-capacity automatic pistol just by handing them cash, not identifying you at all. Now we don't really know where that gun is going. The whole premise, right, and this is the law, it's a felony for an individual who is a convicted felon to purchase a firearm. So you're basically facilitating a crime potentially, and we need to close that loophole. So the legislation recently promoted by the Democrats is the same legislation that followed the Newtown shooting during the Obama administration. 
Unfortunately, the Republicans decided to send him a message which was, you know, ill-conceived, to put it to you politely. It wasn't passed. They need to close this loophole at gun shows. Um, that's all there is to it. There are really no other quote-unquote loopholes unless they're alluding to the casual transfer of firearms from one individual to another. That, again, is something that's regulated state by state. What the federal government would like to do is mandate that the transaction of a firearm between any two individuals is facilitated through a federal firearms dealer, which as a rule is also state licensed. The minute it goes to a federal firearms dealer, a NICS check is conducted, the National Instant Criminal Background Check, and they will determine if in fact you're a convicted felon. Not to run off on a tangent that I'm famous for, but in addition to identifying that, we need to get into a system or a methodology that identifies individuals who are mentally or emotionally unstable and prevent them from acquiring firearms because that's the common denominator to every mass shooting. So, Mark, that's a very good question. This one's been in the hot seat for a while. It started with President Obama after the Newtown shooting. I was in Newtown, by the way. There's nothing, no greater failure than the failure children. So, but I appreciate you calling in. Excuse me. I appreciate you emailing me, Mark. And uh, hopefully I encourage you to do it again. I always appreciate everyone emailing and calling us. And, and I just want to continue to encourage you to do so and to pose questions that you feel need some level of addressment. But I just want to be, make you mindful of something. The exercise is not to participate in anything contentious. We have enough of that going on. We're at a time in our country where we have to start to problem solve. If we do not problem solve, we are not going to be here in the future. That's all there is to it. If we don't start to problem solve, that's going to translate to the safety and well-being of our children who are the future of our country, our nation. So I just want everybody to understand the premise under which we are presenting this show to you. We want you to come on. We want you to pose questions. We want you to have your mind in a mode of problem solving, not contention or argument. And the thing I want to say, people have come to me a lot of times with ideas that didn't immediately align with my thought process. Everyone has merit to their argument as a rule. You need to be relaxed, open up, and understand and listen to what people are saying to you and benefit from it. It's part of your growth problem. Well, those were some great questions today, very probing, interesting questions. I think these are still topics that are in the forefront of our mind, whether it's the gun control issue, the politics attached to it, the capital, the safety and security of our elected officials. We touched on the militia groups, which are very interesting unto themselves. And I think there's a lot more discussion that needs to take place. These are just the beginning of conversations, by the way. I don't want anyone to think that when I come out and I give an opinion as to what represents a compromise, that that's the beginning and the end of the conversation. It's the introduction. What we then have to do is contribute sometimes opposing ideas and figure out what's going to work and serve to the best interest of our country. And again, as I always say repeatedly, what's in the best interest of our children, because that's what this is really about. It's not about me anymore. I had my day in the sun. It isn't over yet. It's just that the sun's starting to set a little bit, I have to be honest. <laughs> and that's it for today. You know, I want to thank everyone again, Spotify, Apple, and look forward to hearing from you again. I'm Lou Palumbo, and this has been Between the Lines. <laughs>